This is a podcast by The Business Times. Welcome to Podcast by The Business Times. I'm your host, Howie Lim. Now, China will open up the final corner of its onshore bond market to foreign financial institutions at the end of June 2022, as Beijing attempts to reignite global interest in yuan debt in the face of a severe economic slowdown. The move comes after global investors dumped a record $35 billion worth of UN-denominated bonds in the first four months of the year as COVID-19 lockdowns have pummeled the country's currency, pushing the yuan down by more than 5% against the dollar in 2022. Rising yields on U.S. Treasuries, spurred by Federal Reserve monetary policy, have also reduced appetite for Chinese government debt, which had become a reliable source of fixed income returns as the ultra-loose monetary policy of Western central banks all but erased yields elsewhere. We're speaking to Wilfred Wee, Portfolio Manager, Fixed Income at 91 today for more insights. This episode is brought to you by 91. Wilfred, thanks for your time. Hi. So lots been happening in the Chinese bond market. Maybe you can first give us an overview and maybe what place they should occupy in an investor's portfolio. Sure. The Chinese bond market is huge. It's varied. But most importantly, I think it's different. And it's this difference of the Chinese fixed income market, the way the Chinese do things, that makes it really interesting for investors. When I say huge, you know, it is a $21 trillion bond market. It's only second to the US. It's actually bigger than Japan already. And when you say different, different than whom, than what? Different versus the rest of the world. If you think of what happened during COVID and post-COVID in the last six months, especially, we've seen the massive re-rating of interest rates higher in the developed world, in major bond markets, even in Asia. But if you look at how Chinese bonds onshore have behaved, given the growth headwinds we're seeing in China, the domestic bond market has actually held up extremely well. And it is actually the biggest outperformer versus global bond markets in the last year. Let's take a step back and think what makes life interesting, right? The fact that we have different various uh, activities, experiences. And similarly, when it comes to a portfolio overall, you know, you do want to have different parts of your portfolio behave differently throughout your entire investment horizon. And I think what we're seeing in Chinese fixed income is that, especially in the onshore bond market, that space is so idiosyncratic, very much driven by domestic growth and inflation factors. And, you know, it behaves so differently from the rest of the world, partly because also policy, it has been different. And the economic cycle is also pretty much different from the rest of the world. Wilfred, one investor's different is another investor's volatile. Mm -hmm. How has recent turbulence, though, in the China market affected investors' appetites? And might they reduce or increase their exposure, you think? Yeah, I think when we talk about the Chinese bond market, we do need to break it up into its main segments. The one that gets the headlines and lots of attention has always generally been the real estate sector, given that it is high yield, you know, it's where private banks have generally been pushing holdings. And uh, it's a bit more exciting, you know, to kind of hit the news. But that is just one segment of the China bond market. There is a much broader segment as well. I talk about the onshore CNY bond market. That's your typical government bond space where yields have continued to be very range-bound, very well-behaved, given inflation being very muted within China. 
And then, of course, there is investment grade space. Investment grade, I think, in the last couple of weeks and months, obviously, have underperformed together with U.S. interest rates. But the spreads continue to be wide versus developed market peers. And that space, all said, you know, is actually lower duration than their U.S. counterparts. And the price volatility in China IG has actually been less than you would have experienced in global investment grade bonds. So think back the experience for Chinese fixed income. It's not just your noisy real estate sector, but there's entire other spectrum of Chinese fixed income that needs to be looked at and to be part of the overall portfolio. And I think, you know, investors have in the last couple of weeks been a bit more cautious, clearly, with the rise in US interest rates. We have seen valuations come in a lot more attractively. This rotation, especially in the last one week, with the market thinking that maybe the US Fed is towards peak interest rate pricing, we are seeing, I think, asset prices find a bit of a rebound uh, in recent days. You've mentioned many things there. We might need to go step by step. First up, what's your view on the China real estate market specifically and where can maybe investors find opportunities there? You know, cyclically, we are at a very interesting spot right now because obviously the Chinese economy is facing growth headwinds, right? And uh, we are also getting a lot of direction from the authorities towards easing of the real estate sector. This is in complete U-turn of what was the position a year ago. So we are seeing, you know, the loosening of mortgage rates, the allowing of more mortgage quotas, and even at the individual province level, encouraging the banks to lend more to developers and also to the mortgage borrowers. So in that sense, I think the policy has been certainly a lot more supportive than it was a year ago. The way I would think of that space, you know, in, in Singapore language, we use the term CMI and you pretty much can break down the real estate developers into three buckets, you know, the CMI, the CMIs and the CMIs, which is the can make it, the can maybe make it and the cannot make it. And I would say the interesting segment would be in the can make it and also the can maybe make it. And these are the developers that obviously are facing a bit of a liquidity crunch, but are still able to tap into alternate financing sources onshore. And these have the support by the policymakers as well, because the Chinese do want affordable housing. They certainly do not want no housing. And to get to that stage, you do need solid conservative, well-run developers to achieve that objective of affordable housing. And, you know, we therefore do need to end up with a subset of much better run large real estate developers. And it is those developers that we think will survive that we're willing to put some money into. What exactly is the it, though, for investors? The cannot make it, the can make it, right? What it is it that they're looking at? Yeah, I think, you know, in fixed income, we do ultimately want to get recovery of our principal. And where the high-yield real estate developers are trading right now in their bond prices, especially in high-yield space, right? It's somewhere in the 20% area at the sector level, and it varies anywhere between six percentage points to much higher. And these, I'm talking about the developers who are paying, right? Those that are defaulted, let's leave them aside for now. And I think that what we want to see is what are they trying to make? And it's really just to survive because, you know, as bond investors, we are just clipping away coupons. We want to make sure that we don't get hit by the downside. And really it is to just make it through this cycle so that we get our full principal back and be able to enjoy those anywhere between 6 and 20% plus yields. So would you say then it's a good time to invest in Chinese bonds? Which areas, because you mentioned quite a few earlier, 
government bonds versus corporate, the investment grade, the high yield, etc.? Yes, indeed. I think, again, let's take a step back and say, you know, let's compare the onshore CNY bond opportunity versus the offshore US dollar bond opportunity. Let's look at investment grade, let's look at high yield and put it all together. I think at this stage, the rate space, clearly with the US having raised interest rates, you know, US treasury yields are higher than Chinese government bond yields onshore. And in that sense, you know, the long end of China, however, still continues to trade with a yield pickup versus long end US treasuries in the long term. There are very structural reasons to expect Chinese government bond yields in the long end to come down given the aging demographics. Still, you know, the inflationary pressures in the US will pressure US yields to go a bit higher. But the deflationary factors within various sectors and within China as well, excess capacity, etc., continues to be positive, I think, for long-end onshore China bond yields. If I think of high yield, pick your spots, don't need to be a hero and go for the CMIs and the CMMIs. Right now, given yields and given the policy direction we talked about earlier, it becomes very interesting to have a diversified basket, some exposure to that space to be able to get that upside. And I think, you know, an investment grade offshore China, that's a space that it has already repriced very significantly in the last six months. We already are seeing a basing of prices and you seem to have topped at least in the short term. I think importantly, we also have seen policy turn a little bit more friendly towards key sectors like technology. And in that sense, you know, all that fear the investors had about the tech sector has somewhat abated. And for fixed income again, you know, we are just trying to pick survivors, pick winners, those who can make it through the cycle and where they have reprised much wider than investment grade developed market peers. That space is really interesting. We're speaking to Wilfred Wee, Portfolio Manager, Fixed Income. This episode is brought to you by 91. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. That's the thing, isn't it, though? It's the trying to figure out what the CMIs are, the CMMIs, and so on and so forth. Talk to us maybe about the key risks then in the China bond market now and how they should be dealt with, what we should be keeping an eye out for. I think indeed the point of CMIs really is default risk, right? And that is bottom-up driven. We take a bit of direction from the top-down policymakers and there has been a bit of softening in the policy front and that actually is fairly conducive for fixed income. Fixed income, we like Goldilocks, right? We don't like things too hot or too cold. And in the short term, China still seems to be a favorable backdrop for fixed income. But let's be honest about the risk. Where could they come from? One, I think, of course, is that the Chinese go perhaps too overboard in the zero COVID strategy. I'm referring to a lack of an end game to how this rolls out. So I think, you know, in order for domestic consumption, domestic sentiment to be well-footed, we do need to see a bit of an ending game for the overall zero COVID policy. We do want to also look at what's happening globally, given, of course, um, inflation pressures in the developed world. Could we see much tighter financial conditions overseas spill over into China? Inflation in the US is still a big question mark. You know, is it really rolling over? Does the Fed have to keep on hiking until we see a recession? Wow. 
you're not really helping us out, us income-seeking investors. Why should we then look into Chinese bonds, though, if there are so many risks involved? You know, I think, again, you come back to valuations and what's priced in, right? The risks are all out there reflected in asset prices. You know, the equity markets obviously corrected. Credit has massively corrected from 2% plus yields now at 4 5% investment-grade space. So all that risks, you know, that we talk about, I think is pretty much baked into asset prices and you pick your spots and for fixed income, let's just go back to the narrative. What are we trying to get out of it? We are trying to get certainty of return of principle and we know where China is right now in terms of the easing cycle and also given where assets have already repriced and are pricing in considerable risks, we are duly paid to be uh, involved. But again, you know, going back to the earlier point, let's think of China as part of your overall portfolio. It's different. Having some exposure to China helps balance, I think, the overall experience in investing. What percentage should it make up of one's portfolio then? And what are some of the other benefits of investing in Chinese bonds? Sure. You know, let's just think simply, right? We can throw out numbers like how the Chinese economy is second largest, maybe even the largest. The second largest in financial markets, in bond space. We could even conceive a world where at some point, Chinese allocation versus the US dollar, pure US equity bond mix becomes even on par. I think that's somewhere that we can even think about in in time to come. And that's really just wearing a pure market portfolio cap. When you want to think of portfolio and putting it together, none of us have a perfect crystal ball as to how the world will be in a year's time or even two years' time. But what we can try to look for within investments is for different assets and different non-correlated, differently behaving assets so that when some part of our portfolio is down, we have something that goes up. And something that goes up, you know, at least we have some offset again when when the other part goes down as well. Having this balance, different portfolio actually helps your overall experience. Chinese way of doing things is different. The way it reacted during COVID and even today, the economic cycle is different. And it's that aspect of China that makes it really interesting. The other benefits, of course, you don't just put money into something that's different, right? It needs to give you joy. It needs to spark joy. And, um, you know, if you look through... Well, you know, money sparks joy, right? Earning it. Well, yeah, it has to earn it, (laughs) but it also needs to have a bit of a positive return, you know, positive risk premium without too much volatility, too much risk, right? And again, if you just go back to how Chinese fixed income has delivered, fairly good risk-adjusted returns, right? We use words like sharp ratios, information ratios. Those numbers are actually very much in favor of China. And again, why, right? The way Chinese financial system is made up of, it's pretty much a lender's market, right? You know, the banks play a big role. You just want to be able to lend to strong entities and get your money back. You probably want to be much more a lender in the China financial market than necessarily a massive capital owner per se. When you think of Chinese fixed income, don't just fixate over the part that gets the headlines, but look at the broader picture look at the meat of China bonds and then consider actually that it's a huge investment grade like fairly low vol proposition and treat the asset for what it is aside from the headlines and all sit within global bonds. You could even say that it is one of, I wouldn't say what's safer, but maybe less, less of all, perhaps even more boring aspect of global fixed income. And for that matter, it actually is what you expect from bonds. Wilfred, thank you so much for spending time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Wilfred Wee, Portfolio Manager, Fixed Income at 91. This episode is brought to you by 91. 
That was a podcast by The Business Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Do note, all analyses, opinions, recommendations, and other information in this podcast are for your general information only. You should not rely on them in making any decision. Please consult a fully qualified financial advisor or professional expert for independent advice and verification. To the fullest extent permitted by law, SPH Media shall not be liable for any loss arising from the use of or reliance on any analyses, opinions, recommendations, and other information in this podcast. SPH Media accepts no responsibility or liability whatsoever that may result or arise from the products, services, or information of any third parties.